Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. I'm joined today by David Hatfield and Jim Schaefer. David is president and CEO of Hatfield Medical Group and a family physician. And Jim is practice administrator with Hatfield Medical Group. David and Jim are here to discuss how their practice is succeeding in value-based care. David, Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, good morning. David, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your medical group, including its history and the number of providers and specialties that you have in there today? Yes, thank you. I would love to. My, uh, my dad sort of started it all um, many moons ago as a uh, solo family practitioner who kind of was one of those uh, country docs who did a little bit of everything. He uh, he delivered babies, he did minor surgeries, he admitted patients to the hospital, and he, he started the, the, the Hatfield Medical Group back in, in the late 1960s, and, and then he had some sons, and, and, and he convinced us to go into medicine. And we, we all gained a love for primary care, uh, watching him uh, just deliver quality care to his patients, and, and really develop a relationship where, where back in those days you would, you know, he was, he was on call all the time and he had a, had a, he had a, you know, just a great relationship with his patients. And we all saw that. And so we kind of, three of the sons decided to go into primary care as well. And so when, when we kind of started finishing our training, our residency, we kind of joined into the group. And, and back in those days, when we joined in, it was, you know, it was very much eat what you kill. It was a fee for service model. And the goal was to, you know, you thought part of your quality initiative was to see as many of as sick people as you could fit in in a day. And, and we viewed that as, as part of serving the community and, and creating access to care. Um, but little did we know that by, by seeing that much volume, ultimately you, 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 you sacrifice a, some of the quality piece. And, and my dad since retired and kind of got to get out before the EMR uh, initiatives hit. And, and then the sons, we took it over and we, we survived in a very uh, fee-for-service model. And thankfully, right when we were starting to see a lot of the burnout with physicians and retention, because they just couldn't keep up the pace of seeing that many patients in a day um, even though they were being paid well, they just, it, it wasn't a reimbursement thing. It was more, uh, uh just a survival mode. And, and then we started to see reimbursements drop and then it became a reimbursement thing. Thankfully around that time is when you started to see, uh, some of the value-based dis- discussions start to happen. And we quickly decided that, you know what, this fee for service model is not sustainable, especially with the EMR burden the administrative burdens put on us um, with documentation now and click fatigue that happens with an EMR. And so we started to, 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 hear, to, to kind of align in a value-based model. And a few payers stepped up to the plate and we started to have discussions. We started to initiate those discussions about what that would look like and what, where we would have to perform certain metrics, HEDIS metrics, quality metrics that we would have to perform, chronic disease management, uh, patient experience, all these different things that we started to say, hey, we need to measure 
to be able to perform in a value-based payment model um, and to be able to really perform in a population health world. And so as we started to move to that, we just, we quickly saw provider satisfaction grow. Uh, our population health team grew and started to say, wow, we're, we're, we're really starting to see differences in patients' lives because we're seeing less patients and being able to take more time with them. And so that's a little bit about the evolution about how it happened. We're no different than the rest of the rest of the medical community. We were surviving in fee-for-service and we knew it was broken and not going to work uh, for, for many reasons that I mentioned. And we needed to start to say, how are we going to get into the value-based payment model? Right. And I wanted to ask you about that then. So you, you saw the need. You saw the need to change. And if you stayed the same, there were going to continue to be issues there. But seeing the need and then actually making those changes are two different things. And I'm just wondering, uh, what were some of those pain points to move from volume to value, to change that cultural mindset? What were some of the biggest challenges in, in making that shift? So one of the biggest challenges was, was meeting with payers that, that, that didn't understand what we knew about value-based payment model. And we had to help, we had to teach them, no, this is how we need to be graded and this is how we need to start to be paid based on, on value. And here's what those value metrics look like. And then one, one of the other critical things is changing the culture of our practice from and how we paid providers uh, and even administrators, you know, we, we would pay an administrator based on, hey, how much revenue did we generate? Everything, we, we talked about revenue a lot rather than quality. And so, and one of the key things that we did is Jim and I, our, Jim, our practice administrator, we found each other and we are very like-minded. Thankfully, Jim and I found each other. We spoke the same language and we knew that at that point, we needed, to, we needed to change the culture of our providers, change the culture of our support team, and take that culture and, and take it to the payers. Because without the payers, it, it, it doesn't work, right? You can do the, the population health and the value-based model, if you just do it in your, in your clinic or in your offices without the payer's support or without them reimbursing you that way, it, it falls on deaf ears. We knew that we couldn't survive in that model and that we needed to just rip the Band-Aid off and move forward full steam ahead, population health based, because we knew that it was gonna be best for, for first the patients and then the, 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 the health team that supports the care of the patients. And then in the reimbursement model, we knew that that's, that's where we were going to be compensated best for the work that we're doing. and so. I would say that partnering with Jim Schaefer, a like-minded individual who knew that we were going to have to make some tough financial decisions and just tough decisions all the way around culturally to move us from the fee-for-service model to a value-based model. And so with that, I'll, I'll kind of kick it to Jim to, to let him kind of, if he wants to expand on some of the things that, that, we, that we did to ensure our success as we moved from fee-for-service to value-based. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, um, some of the things that we did at Hatfield Medical Group, 
were, uh, we wanted to make sure the, the whole patient experience was improved. Um, that may not be the first thing you would do in a, in a fee-for-service model, but everything from the check-in process to the check-out process to when patients call the office um, or need to access uh, or talk to someone in the office, improve that experience. Well, you have to allocate more resources to do that. And typically in an old fee-for-service model, you would, you would say, can we afford to hire on this person? Versus when you look at an experience, we got to make that uh, experience enjoyable when someone calls into the office that they aren't on hold for five minutes, um, that they can actually get through and talk to somebody and, and talk to someone who can be a go-between between their provider and subsequently get back to them um, with information, uh, whether it be through technology coming through um, and being able to um, type a message to the provider or make a phone call in. Um, we also had to take a kind of look at uh, the offices and update them a little bit, right? Yeah, paint them, clean them up a little bit, make that uh, a more enjoyable lobby area and check-in area. And then additionally, one, one of the toughest things we had to do, and thankfully Dr. David Hatfield was on board, um, was improve access to care. We had to make sure patients were able to get in same day or next day, depending on you know how serious of an issue is going on. Well, in order to do that, you have to have enough providers. And, uh, and so to take on more providers, you're going to add to your uh, productivity costs. And, and so that takes a bit of a leap of faith when you're transitioning in this fee-for-service to value-based model. Right. And Jim, I wanted to follow up because you're talking about you really took a holistic approach there. You did a little bit of everything. Where was the biggest challenge? I mean, one thing is a, putting a coat of paint somewhere. Was it getting people on board with the processes? Was it um, developing uh, a different culture, a different mindset? Where, where were the biggest challenges there? So I don't think, the, the, the nice thing is, um, I have a background in nursing. I had been a registered nurse for uh, uh, nearly 20 years before coming on board with uh, Dr. David Hatfield at Hatfield Medical Group. And one of the things is you did, we didn't have to, uh, it wasn't a hard sell to tell uh, employees or tell um, providers, we'd like to give, provide better quality care. Intrinsically, all the providers and staff want to do that. Um, there was just never enough time to do that with patients or more so uh, not enough resources. So it wasn't a hard sell to say, we'd like to provide better quality care to the, to the patients and a better patient experience. Everyone was on board with that, but we just never were able to do it in the past because you had to watch every nickel or dime, so to speak. I would add that, that one of the, in my opinion, one of the biggest challenges was, you know, in the past, in a fee-for-service world, the payer-provider relationship was very adversarial, right? It was, it was, hey, I did the work. Why aren't they paying me on time? Or why did they they're not paying me enough for what I've done. Right. And so as, as we started to move to this value-based payment model, we needed to start, we needed to work with the payers and leverage their resources and leverage those relationships and, and, and make, you know, really in, in some instances, the payers are really more of our customer than the actual patients. Now, I know that most medical providers wouldn't see it that way, but at the end of the day, the people that are paying you, that's your customer. Um, and we needed, to, we needed to align with the payers, which, me, which basically means we needed to, 
align with quality metrics. We needed to align with patient experience, with, with creating access to care, uh, transitional care management, follow up from when patients are in the hospital. Are we getting them in in a timely manner? Are we preventing unnecessary hospitalizations? And so we started to have a lot of those discussions with the payers. That was the biggest challenge for me was creating time out of my schedule to now go have these discussions with Jim, get in front of the payers and really start to have the discussions around total medical expense and where, where we were leaking and where we needed to rein it in. And, and so that was new for me as a provider when normally, you know, in my early part of my career, I, I didn't meet with payers per se. I would meet with an occasional provider rep. So, so I would say that, that the quality piece was not a hard sell for us intrinsically as a clinic. Uh, better access to care, no better culture, all that. The challenge was now we've got to go have relationships with these payers and, and help them understand what we're doing and in some cases coach them up. Let's, you've talked about the process changes and cultural changes. What about the day, the day-to-day -day for you, you and your staff? What happened there? Did you, how do, let's talk about what a day looks like now for you and your staff and, and maybe how that compares to before the transition. So I, and, and Jim will be able to speak to this as well. We'll, we'll tag team this, but I would say that we started to really live our mission and our mission is really to us value-based or population health care is simply this quality compassionate care to every patient every day and we live it in our we live it and breathe it in every one of our clinics and and we 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 make sure we hire and interview kind people i can train anybody how to do a medical note or help them navigate our EMR system. Jim can work with any front office person to help them understand our workflows. We, we just believe in a strong culture of being kind and treating every person like you would treat your own mother. And so we emphasize that very much in our clinics. Um, and, and, we, and, and again, in order to, if you expect it, you better have a way that you measure it, right? You, if, you, that's what, you know, if you expect it, you better inspect it is what the saying is. And so we, we, we measure all of that. We, we, we measure our patient experience. We measure our quality outcomes. We have dashboards that we put up that tell us how we're doing and tell us where we need to improve. You can't just say the days, gone are the days that a physician can say, oh, I'm a quality provider, my patients love me, um, and I do great work, and I'm really busy, okay? It, you have to show me, because without data, you're just kind of a guy with another opinion. And so you have to be able to produce data if you want to produce change. Jim, did you want to weigh in on that? Absolutely. So uh, data analytics, uh, Dr. David Heffield nailed it on the head there. Um, one of the big changes was we became a much more data-driven organization. Um, you're, ga you're gathering data from a lot of disparate sources, and we wanted to uh, be able to aggregate this data and, and make it actionable, um, whether it be on how we're doing from a patient experience or customer experience um, from different review sites uh, to uh, quality metrics to see how we're moving uh, percentage-wise and monthly and daily um, and on quality metrics. Um, additional how we're doing in value-based uh, revenue coming in uh, to the organization. 
but that uh, was one key key change. And then additionally, we took a much more proactive approach. The, the old model would be, you know, someone would call into the office if they're sick or had episodic care needs. And we had to take a much more proactive approach. We were, we were doing outreach, calling our patients, asking them to come in and getting them in more of a, a preventative pattern, having that uh, annual wellness visit and having them come into the office. Uh, when they're when they're healthy, when they can ask questions, when we can get to know the patient, when we can make sure we have all of the medications reconciled appropriately, so that when something does happen and they do need episodic care, we can better handle and manage it because we have data within our um, EHR, um, and additionally gathering data from outside sources. We had to become much more um, interoperable and communicate with other organizations, um, such as a local. Um, the state registry, the health information exchange, um, getting laboratory data and, and data just from uh, many disparate sources to, to make sure that we can provide actionable um, uh, quality uh, evidence-based outcomes. So I would uh, add, though I would add one thing to the typical day, and, and it's pretty, probably pretty key, um, is, is really uh, our providers and their workflow now you know, versus being stressed over this fee-for-service model, and now they're they're seeing less patients delivering better quality. There is much more, much more satisfaction from a from a career choice, from a just a medical, you know, being a medical care uh, person now than than there ever was. I absolutely would echo that. In addition to that, um, I would like to say that, you know, the supporting and having the resources to support that provider in their role, um, we now have available, which is uh, phenomenal. We have specifically with transitional care management. In the past, you wouldn't be able to get hospital records or know what happened to that uh, patient when they entered the hospital or were discharged from the hospital. They would show up at your office door. I was in the hospital. I was told to follow up with my doctor. What were you in the hospital for? And so uh, having that, um, being able to access that data and those records and those hospital records um, has allowed us to uh, provide that. That's a great point, Jim. Okay. So you've implemented those changes. We talked about the challenges earlier. in going from volume to value, but I, I want to look at it from a different way. What would you have changed differently? Because anytime you make changes, you're going to make some missteps here and there so we can help other practices out there. What are some of the things you might have uh, changed early on that you, you only know about now through hindsight? Well, I, I would, I would kind of repeat what I said earlier. One of the things that, one of the things that I think that, that, that we would do earlier is, is get out in front of more payers. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get out in front of one particular payer, Humana, and that, as I recall, that was our really our first um, extensive value-based contract. And and because Humana was had had done it in other markets, they were more than willing to to have that discussion with us. And 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 honestly, I think we we kind of stalled out. I had that discussion. And we felt so great about the contract that somebody was going to be able to, that wanted to speak our language, that we stalled out a little bit. And we were, we didn't, we didn't take it and say, hey, you know what? We're a payer agnostic medical group. We don't just take one payer. We need to really go tell our story and the changes that we've already made and are committed to, to, to make down this value-based payment model and really take it to all payers. And I feel even today, we should be 
we should be more um, aggressive in our approach and take it to payers and say, hey, this is our story. We need, we need you to work with us in this value-based payment model. And, and here's, we're okay if you hold our feet to the fire and hold us accountable. We want to be held accountable from, from everything from controlling the total medical expense by delivering better care, better access to care, better patient experience, all of those things. We, we could have done a better job of that early getting in front of more payers. Well, let me ask you a question there. You were talking about you were uh, letting them know you'd want them to hold your feet to the fire. What do you mean by that? Well, we were okay being held accountable, uh, managing, managing the cost to care for the patient because we were all, we're all in on value-based. And for us, again, value-based means getting the patient the right care at the right place at the right time. And we, we were committed to, to d taking care of those patients and managing them as a panel of patients or population health and moving all of the levers that we needed to move from, from access to care to breast cancer screening to diabetic retinal eye exams. And I'll give you an, just, just an example, if I could, um, so Jim came to me and said, hey, Dr. Hatfield, we need to implement diabetic retinal eye exam screening in our clinics. And I go, Jim, how are we going to do that? We're not ophthalmologists. And he says, we're going to buy the cameras. We're going to take the pictures. We're going to train our medical assistants how to take the pictures. And we're going to screen for diabetic retinal eye exams in our clinics. We're going to send out the pictures to a board certified ophthalmologist. We're going to get the reports back and we're going to not only ultimately close the measure, but we're going to catch diabetic retinal disease and screen for it earlier than anybody else. And again, the data showed that everybody in our neck of the woods was doing it very poorly. When, when you rank it from a one to five, most people were one to two stars. And Jim took it upon himself to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to take each initiative and figure out the best way to close that quality metric. And so we bought cameras, we trained our medical assistants how to take the pictures, trained our doctors how to make sure that it was being ordered, created flags in our EMR um, that were soft reminders of, hey, this person's a diabetic, they haven't had their diabetic retinal exam screening done, let's make sure it's happening. And then let's be able to report back to the plans through data exchange, interoperability, that it's happening. So. That, that's one of the things that, that Jim came to me. And again, I was not, can't, those cameras are very expensive. And in many instances where payers didn't pay for it, we committed to just eat the cost and pay for it. Now, when they saw that we were moving the measure, uh, they started to say, hey, how are you, do, how are you going from two-star to five-star? Nobody, nobody's doing that. And then we went, got out in front of them, explained to them what we were doing, and ultimately they they wanted to they wanted to pay for that service. That's not where the benefit comes. The benefit comes from the cost savings from screening and finding diabetic retinal eye disease early. The, the cost the cost for the procedure is pennies compared to finding the disease and treating it early in a diabetic and preventing ultimately blindness. Mm -hmm. I hope that made sense, but that's just one of the things that we took on and that we took to the payers 
before they before they brought it to us, we brought that to them. Right, uh, and I wanted to follow up with Jim because uh, how did you know which steps to take, Jim? Did you have a background in quality control or did you work with people out, external people to help guide you? Where, where did you learn what needed to be done? So with my background in nursing, um, quality, uh, quality metrics, uh, the shift to quality has been happening um, for, for many years. And when I saw, I, I kind of just put the pieces together. This, is a, this was a gap in care or a deficit or gap in care. And this is how we could move it. And again, taking that leap of faith, right? Initially, we didn't get paid. We needed to take on that cost burden. But in order, our goal was improve the quality. The, and hopefully the revenue would come and you can do, you were able to do that as you shift to this value-based model. In a, in a fee-for-service model, you wouldn't take that leap of faith and you wouldn't just start doing this out of the uh, kindness of your heart. You'd say this is a, a losing revenue proposition. And so uh, knowing that, hey, we, we can move it, we can do this here because ultimately a patient doesn't want to have to travel and go to another appointment just to have their eyes checked. If they, unless they have you know, an ophthalmologist and have some sort of uh, condition that they need to be frequently seen uh, at an ophthalmologist's office, we can still deliver that care now through leveraging technology, through leveraging um, resources and, and cameras, uh, you know, all the technology that we have available to us, kind of put together the, the, the dots and implemented it. And it was a little bit of trial and error. Um, I had to watch and see what the payers would do or say and then actually the, the great thing about it was they approached us and said, wait a minute, how are you doing this? And that's, that's when we knew we did something right. And we said, this is, this is the right thing. Look at what we've, we've done. They're coming to us. And I wanted to follow up with you guys because we keep talking about volume to value. We're talking about patient quality and outcomes. Have you measured that? Have you seen results on how the your patients, have you evaluated, gotten evaluations for them or, or feedback from them on how they're uh, responding to value-based care? Well, I think one of the primary things uh, that value-based care allows uh, medical teams, so we, we view ourselves as a medical team, not just, not just the physician, but there's a whole, there's a whole team of people that that it's a heavy lift, this value-based payment stuff, this, this population health. It's not one person can't do it. it. It takes a team. It takes a village to, to raise a child. And that's, and that's how we view it. And, and I, and I would say that, um, you know, the feedback that we're getting, not just from patients, from the time that providers spend in the room reviewing actual, their actual medical problems and helping them navigate some of their um, social determinants of health barriers. Um, our chronic care managers who are who are trained specifically to to outreach those folks who have um, multiple chronic disease conditions and 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 check in with them every month to to determine you know are they do they need their medicines are they taking their medicines the way they're supposed to something as simple as hey mrs jones are you are you following your diabetic diet is are you having are you having trouble is there something that we can help you with and and there's an actual we have there's a protocol that we follow to be able to follow up with some of those patients. And so what we're hearing from patients is, is really, wow, this is nice. I have time with my provider to, to discuss everything. We don't, we don't put a time limit on them. We let them come in and, and we, 
we address all their concerns. Now, admittedly, some things take a priority and others take a backseat, and that's just part of the clinical decision-making. The feedback that we're hearing from, from patients, from the healthcare team, and, the, and just the experiences that we're having because we're taking time to listen to patients and help them navigate some of the, not just their, their health challenges, but also some of their challenges with, with, with their social determinants of health, um, barriers to food, transportation, uh, housing, all those things. Um, on a high level, we're, we're helping navigate a lot of different areas of their life. And the only way you can do that is to create time. And going from fee-for-service to value-based, I used to see 45, 50 patients in a day. I, on average, see 20 to 21 patients a day now. And, and so you can imagine, I mean, that just, you don't need data to tell you that patients are going to be happier if you're spending more time with them. I mean, not time talking about their kids and what, and what's going on in their personal life, but time discussing the challenges they have with their health. Jim, did you want to add anything to that? No, I'd, I'd agree. We're able to address some of those things, right? We have to start thinking about uh, the patient differently. Um, and I'll give just one uh, quick example. When we talk about social determinants of health and something we weren't able to do three years ago, uh, we had a patient who, we, as we became more proactive, uh, we wanted to make, find out why certain patients were coming into the office. What are their barriers to coming into the office? So what we were able to do was, uh, as we outreach, we started to ask questions. Hey, would you like to come in for an appointment? Well, patients wouldn't show up for an appointment. You say, well, that's just a patient. They're, they're missing their appointment. Um, they're non-compliant. Uh, it's a word we banned from our organization. Um, we want to identify um, and overcome barriers. So we don't like to use the word non-compliant at all. Um, it's actually restricted from our vocabulary at Hatfield Medical Group. But specifically, we found out some of our patients didn't, didn't have a ride. Their, their son or their daughter wasn't uh, able to take them because they were at work. And that was their only way to get to our office. So as we try and figure out, well, if we can get them a ride to the office, well, then they get access to care. Um, and they don't have to wait for that episodic care or until something goes wrong and need, I need a ride or an ambulance to the hospital. Um, and so we've seen a lot of success with that and, and, act, and understanding barriers and social determinants of health. Now, let's, uh, let's turn to the sort of 800-pound gorilla in the room here. We've, we've touched on revenue and cost a little bit, but let's... Let's take a deeper dive into that and get to the heart of the matter and, and discuss if your value-based contracts through payers have made a positive impact to the overall practice revenue or if they've created value by reducing cost. So, Jim, I, I can take part. It, it, it's both. It, it has to be both. When you start to learn, when we started to learn what the payer was asking for uh, and we knew we knew the different things that they would allow us to bill in a, in a free for service world. We started to improve um, the, the type of visit that we would do. We started to charge for things that we didn't know we could charge for before having discussions around tobacco cessation, which is, which is improving the patient's health, having discussions around advanced directives and living wills, uh, improves population health. And basically all of those things lower medical expense, total medical expense on a, on a plan side. But, but those are things that, 
when we have those discussions and are doing the right thing, payers are willing to pay for, but you have to know how to code it and do it the right way. And then as you align those contracts and as you start to, to prevent unnecessary hospitalizations and create access to care in your clinic so that patients are getting the right care at the right place at the right time versus, versus winding up in the ER for something that could be very easily handled or treated in your clinic, when you start to have those shared savings, when you have those shared savings contracts in place, the plans are more than willing, the payers are more than willing to give you part of that savings because they know that, that where the expense really happens is in, the, is in the patient not getting the right care at the right place at the right time. Because when he winds up in the ER, that patient that's very familiar to me with congestive heart failure, diabetes, and COPD, when he winds up in the ER and the ER doc doesn't have any history of the patient really or any access to my medical records or my notes of what I've been doing with the patient, that ER doc for the most part is going to just throw his hands in the air and say, wow, this patient's really sick. We need to put him in the hospital for a few days versus me managing him in an outpatient setting, getting him on the right inhaler, maybe getting him to a cardiologist that same day because I have a, uh, a cardiologist that will see him because I have a, a relationship with him. And then, and then we avoid a hospitalization. So it's, it's not rocket science. When you, when you can avoid unnecessary hospitalizations, uh, unnecessary readmissions to the hospital because we're now doing outreach to folks that are in the hospital, getting appointments to them in a timely manner to do transitional care management to review their medicines with them, get them the appropriate follow-ups to the specialist that they need, and, and get them, the, again, the right care at the right place at the right time is key. And as, and as clinicians, and as, and as Jim, as the administrator, we understand that on a high level. And so everything we do is, is to get that person quality, compassionate care as quickly as we can. Now, do you have any key takeaways that you would suggest for listeners who would want to invest in value-based care initiatives? I would say yes. <laughs> align and align quickly and move down that path. Don't hesitate. Uh, it, the one thing we, we should have done is uh, done it sooner and, uh, and faster and had, uh, had more faith and no hesitation in what we were doing. Because when you're doing the right thing, um, it just, it, it feels great. The patients have a great experience. So, uh, and it's okay to make errors. I'd say fail and fail quickly. If you make a couple of mistakes, just uh, redirect and, and get back on course and, and learn what you can from that, uh, whatever process you're implementing, whether it be chronic care management or transitional care management or discussions around advanced directives with patients, any of those things, uh, start the process, implement something and, and fine tune it as you go. Absolutely. Don't, don't don't be afraid to start get go sit with your with with the payers sit with whoever's leading your aco and and it's okay we weren't great we weren't great at any of it initially we weren't great at access to care we weren't great at, at mammogram screening we weren't great at transitional care management we weren't great at chronic care management we we wanted to find out the baseline don't be afraid to to start and just say, hey, oh, here's where we are. Oh, well, we're not, we're not very good at some of those things that the plan, 
that the payer is measuring us on or that our patients, how our patients view us. Start somewhere. It's okay to have a baseline and then say, hey, this is where we want to be. Let's set some goals to get there. And it's a heavy lift. And you won't be able to move every lever all at the same time. You're going to move, you're going to move, you're going to move a lever and you're going to see some success. And then you're going to go to the next lever. And then the, the first lever that you were, that you were pulling on, now it's not doing as well. And you got to go back to it. And you got to continually, as, as Jim likes to say, we are continually beating the drum of value-based medicine. And we tell our providers and our care teams all the time, we are what we do, not what we say we will do. In other words, we want to see data that shows that we are doing what we say we do. And, and, and if, you, if you'll stick to that mantra and you'll just, you'll continually beat the drum, you will have success and you have to do, you have to do, all you have to do is create the why in your medical group. And the why for us is we want to deliver quality, compassionate care to every patient every day. And we want them to have an experience in, the, in our clinics and with our providers and medical, medical care teams that are, that are second to none. David, Jim, thanks so much for your insights today. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thanks again to David Hatfield and Jim Schaefer for sharing their thoughts on how a practice can succeed in a value-based care model. If you want to learn more about value-based care, MGMA has an upcoming three-part member-exclusive webinar series on value-based care coming this summer. The first installment will be June 11th on how to succeed in commercial value-based care, a presentation with Humana. You can go to mgma.com events for more information or to register. Thanks again for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams.